Today's scripture reading is Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Uh, good morning again, Holy Trinity. That's uh, what said. My name is Joel. I still am technically a pastor here at Holy Trinity, so I can at least hold on to that title right now. Uh, if you've been here for a while, you know that I cry a lot. I cry basically in every single sermon that I preach. And I was really anticipating that during that announcement by John, I was going to cry and kind of get it all out. And then I'd be fine during my sermon. And that didn't happen. So. Who knows what's going to happen during the sermon? I don't really know how this is going uh, to go. You may be a little confused. Oh, okay, the banner that was up there did say this is a series in 1 Corinthians. You may have been a little bit confused why we were reading out of Philippians. But when I was first invited to preach this Sunday, it was known that it would likely be pretty hard for me to find time to write uh, a sermon. I am a, not a full-time pastor right now, as John was saying, but a full-time PhD student. And so it was kind of assumed that what I would do was I would preach a sermon that I had preached before at HTC, and I was thinking specifically about preaching a sermon on Psalm 121, which is one I preached online during the pandemic. But kind of throughout the week, as I thought about that and kind of went over Psalm 121, it just, it didn't really feel right to me. It wasn't really uh, sitting well with me, the idea that on probably what is my last sermon, I think, at HTC, that I wouldn't be bringing something new. Now, as this was happening, for school, I had been studying this text, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, a lot, because it just happened that I was assigned to present on this text in two days from now in one of our seminars. I'm supposed to focus on Philippians 2, 5 through 11 in this Christology seminar, and I kept thinking, maybe I should preach on this instead. Maybe I should do a sermon on Philippians 2. But what really kind of convinced me that this is what I should do, even though I was like, you know, there's a lot of affinity with 1 Corinthians, so it would fit well with the series that John and Sully have been faithfully leading us through. What finally convinced me was a question uh, that Melissa Mackey asked me when I sought her advice on how she thought I should think through this. And she asked me what I wanted to leave. HT. What would I want to leave HTC with? Would you rather be Psalm 121 or Philippians 2? And as soon as she asked it, I was like, okay, I think I gotta preach on Philippians 2. Because if I had to choose one text that most succinctly sums up what I hope I have, by God's grace, encouraged us to be throughout the years that the Lord has graciously had me here, it would perhaps be this one. This would maybe be the one text 
I would choose, and it felt somewhat that God had kind of providentially put it before me this past week so I would have the ability to preach on it today. What this text, I think, calls on us, calls on the church to do or really to be is to be a unique community, to be a place where people have a different mindset, where they think differently compared to everywhere else. So we are to be a place where the needs of others are actually put before our own needs. That's what dictates our lives. That's part of what this text is calling us to do, but it calls us to do this not because of some law, not because of some moral crusade, but because of what Christ has done for us. It calls on us to give ourselves to others because God in Christ has given himself to us. And that is what I want to show you today as we look at this text. Now, I I hope it ties in again with what we've been doing in 1 Corinthians on this idea of the wisdom. What is the wisdom that God gives to us? It is not the wisdom of our world. It's a wisdom that actually puts others before ourselves. That says, my life is not my own to live, but it's someone else's. And so we give ourselves to others. Why? Because Christ gave himself for us. That is what I hope to show you while looking at Philippians 2 today. And so pray with me, and then let's dive into the text. All right, let's pray. Father, Lord, we love you. But Father, we know that we can only say that because you first loved us. Your son first loved us. He poured out his life onto death for us, giving himself to us, giving us everything we could ever need. And because of that, it's called on us then to give our lives away to others because what more can we gain for living for ourselves? Lord, I pray then that today you would enable me to put that forward. I plead with you that your spirit graciously would work right now so that we would be changed, that your spirit would reveal Jesus Christ to each one of us. I pray that this in no way would actually be about me, be my last sermon or anything like that, Lord, but it would be about your son, your son Jesus Christ, who unites us to one another because he has united us to him. May we know him better now and may we go out today to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to keep it open to Philippians 2. It's Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and I want you to look with me at verse 5. This is what verse 5 says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay, so Obviously, we are diving into this letter kind of in the middle of it, which means that to really understand what's going on here, we need to see it in context. We got to know what what is going on around this passage. And I think that's especially important when looking at this verse, okay? Because Paul, what he means here by this mind or really this, this type of thinking, this type of living is what he has just talked about leading up to our text, even though he'll expand on it through this hymn or this poem about Christ. So it seems that in Philippi, which is the city that Paul is writing to here, there are some similar problems to what we've been finding going on in the city of Corinth. Okay, so Corinthians is written to Corinth, Philippians is written to Philippi. There seems to be some similar problems in the two different churches. There, of course, are differences 
Corinth seems to be in a significantly worse condition uh, in some ways. That's why we titled the series Church on Fire. Um, it's not doing well. But there are similarities in the two places as well, in two ways in particular. The first is that there seems to be some division amidst the people of the church in Philippi. People are dividing or fighting with one another. Again, not probably as badly as in Corinth, but Paul, near the end of this letter, calls on two prominent women in the church to agree in the Lord and wants the church to help them do so because they're fractured from one another. So division is an issue in Philippi as well. But there's another problem. There's another problem, which is a misguided view of suffering. And again, we have seen this as an issue in Corinth. So in Corinth, as we've been looking at, they want wisdom. They want an impressive teacher, but instead they have a suffering apostle and a crucified savior. And that doesn't make sense with the wisdom of the world. And Philippi is not too different. They've not been interested in Paul being a guru, but the letter to Philippians seems to present a people who are in despair, who are struggling to rejoice because they see Paul, the one who preached to them, told them of Christ, helped convert the people in the church to follow the king and God of the universe. They see that guy in jail. And perhaps they are starting to face this opposition as well, and it's causing them to be in despair, to ask, is this really worth it? Does this make any sense with following God? Or that should not surprise us. This was a common struggle for people in the ancient world. But you think about how Jesus uses his power. How did Jesus use his power? It is the opposite to how people in the ancient world thought power should be used. If you had power, you wielded it for yourself. You used it to actually bring yourself up. So why were the true followers of the God of all things, the God who is omnipotent, has all power, why would the followers be suffering? Why would the God over all things save us through his own pain, through his crucifixion? You see, this was not just a struggle then for Philippi or Corinth. It was a struggle for basically all the people who heard this message in the ancient world. So if you actually go, I'm not really recommending you do this, but if you want to, go, go have fun. If you go and read one of the Gnostic Gospels, okay, one of the Gospels that's not included in the Bible, which people who don't know what they're talking about, love to say that the church in this kind of power struggle booted these, these gospels out because they made Jesus too divine or too, too human, which they don't. They do, they do kind of opposite. If you go and read one of them, not only do they make Jesus way more divine, he's like kind of the spiritual thing, what all of them do is remove the cross from Jesus' life. All of them get rid of the suffering. They get rid of the pain. They get rid of the scandal, the offense of Christianity, the foolishness of the cross, as Paul puts it in Corinthians, is gone. Because when we think about it, it does seem strange. Christianity claims to know the God who created everything, who rules over all the universe, and so it's control of all nations. We claim to know Jesus Christ as the risen Lord of Lord and King of Kings to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. Why then are we saved through his suffering? Why then do his followers face so much pain? The Philippians seem to have been wrestling with these questions and it was bringing them to despair. 
and perhaps even causing divisions among them. But what we see happen then in the letter to the Philippians is Paul explain that his imprisonment is a good thing. He rejoices in the fact that he is in jail. In fact, he says he would rejoice in his death. Why? Well, in part, it's because he gets to be with Christ then, but it's also because he thinks through his suffering, good is being done by God through him for others. He has this mindset that since through Christ, everything he needs has been given to him, he now is able to act like Christ toward others. So that he says this famous line, for to me, to live is Christ. And they're actually, it's not, the word is is not there. It's just for to me, to live, Christ. Living for Paul is actually being like Christ to others. It's actually suffering for the sake of others. It is bringing the grace of God to others, no matter what happens, because he knows what he has in Jesus. That is his mindset. And so he will rejoice in what he goes through if it brings glory to God and helps others. And he wants, he wants the Philippians to do the same, to rejoice in following the Lord no matter the cost. And so he says to them at the end of chapter 1, that their lives should be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they should strive together side by side for the gospel to go forth. They should stand firm in the face of difficulty because it has been granted. And that word granted there, if you actually look at the end of chapter 1, the word granted is literally graced. It has been graced to us that for the sake of Jesus, we should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. That's how Paul wants the Philippians, Christians, to live. And he continues on in chapter 2, leading right up into our text, saying that we should be united, that we should have the same mind among us, that we should do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but should actually consider everyone else more important than ourselves. So we look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others, that we should live for God by living for others. That is what Paul is saying leading up to our text, and it applies to us today as well. Because, guys, that is the mindset. That is the mind. That's the type of thinking that Paul is calling on the church and Philippi, and thus also us, to have. And it definitely is to us. Again, again if you look at verse 5, the whole thing is what it says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay, what the second part of that verse means is something like, which is yours because you are in Christ, or which is appropriate for those who are saved and thus united to Christ. This is not just a mindset that Philippi was to have. This is the mindset. This is the type of thinking. This is the wisdom of the Spirit that all of us who are in Christ should have. And so we need to hear that very clearly today. Because again, like, think about what Paul is saying here. Do nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Be united. Strive with all that you are to be one. Know that for those of us who believe and trust in Christ, we've been given the privilege to not just believe in Jesus, but to suffer as we bear witness to what Christ has done for the world. Those things are clearly not just difficult for the people in Philippi to do. 
Now, how are you doing with those things, with doing nothing from selfish ambition? How are we doing? Are we a different kind of community? such that we are truly united, even amidst differences? Are we a suffering community for the sake of Jesus? Or do we shy away from bearing witness to him because of the possible repercussions? Are we a community who puts the needs of others first? Listen, guys, I, I know this is so hard, and I want to say as I kind of push us to think about this stuff, I do believe that Holy Trinity is a faithful church. Not perfect, of course, but it's such a faithful church. It, it has actually considered my needs so often greater than its own. But it's still hard when we start thinking about this because we do fail. We do run up against this. And honestly, for myself, this mindset has often been a struggle. Actually, I really think that one of the most important moments in my entire life was when Pastor John, when John confronted me on this very thing. So some of you know this story, but a number of years ago, there was a period where I was really struggling with being the associate pastor here. Felt like, you know, I, I want to be the main guy. I want to be up there preaching. I want to be doing more of these kind of things. I want to be kind of, I mean, I want to be the more center of attention, I guess. I felt like I had the gifting for it, and I wanted to be in a place where I was. I had this dissatisfaction within me, and so I reasoned that God must be leading me out of Holy Trinity to plant a church in Toronto, Ontario, close to where I grew up, which is why maybe you're hearing outs and abouts up here. And so I came to John about this, and I told him, and I gave him all of my reasoning. We were sitting in Bridgeport Coffee House, uh, the one in Bridgeport. I know that sounds weird, but there's ones outside of it. But anyway, so we were sitting in Bridgeport Coffee House in Bridgeport. And now I want to be clear on John's response. John was fully fully supportive of me doing that. He believed in my giftings, and he said, you know, if the Lord is calling you to go to Toronto, I, I want to send you. I want to fully support you in this. But he was actually very concerned for me because of my reasoning. And like the spiritual father he is to me, he said, this is almost a direct quote, Joel, I fear that your reasoning is not right here. That's not go godly. I fear that you've shifted in your thinking from being like Timothy in Philippians, whom Paul describes as not being concerned for himself, but generally concerned for their welfare, shifted in your thinking from being like Timothy in Philippians to being like Corinth, who's only concerned for themselves and their gifts. And he was right. My reasoning, my mindset had nothing to do with serving others. It didn't have to do with Toronto and a burden I felt to bring the gospel there. My mindset was all about me and my gifts. And I was using the church as a platform for myself. And thank God, thank God, I had a brother there to confront me. That's, that's how subtle it can be. Actually, in, in Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, which is a book that we read every year in the Burnham Fellowship. Bonhoeffer makes a distinction between spiritual love and human, or you could translate it emotional love. And the difference is really what the ultimate goal is of what you do. Okay? Because for, emo for emotional love, it's ultimately about itself. 
Now, this doesn't mean it can't make amazing sacrifices. It does. Actually, Bonhoeffer says that emotional love is capable of the most remarkable of sacrifices. But you do it for yourself. You sacrifice, and it looks like maybe it's for the other person, but in reality, you're doing it because you want them to see you a specific way, to love you a specific way. You love in a way that is about you. Whereas spiritual or true love is that which gives itself away for the sake of others, for the sake of Christ. It is not about itself. But I think what's so hard about that is that living for ourselves, being more concerned for yourself, loving others for our own sake, living for the pursuit of fulfilling our own potential is basically how we've been shaped and formed to live in our world. So many of us throughout our lives have been formed to believe that we should live primarily for ourselves. Yes, we should care for others. Yes, we should do those things. But ultimately, I actually kind of need to be about myself. That the purpose of our lives is about us finding our dreams. We should do what we want to do and not let anyone stand in our way. That is how our world, our society, our culture calls on us to live. I'm sure many of you actually have kind of almost like a knee-jerk reaction against some of the things I have been saying here. But that's because our world has told us to live that way for ourselves. But guys, Paul here is calling on the church to be a counterculture, to be a counter-society, to display a different way of life, to have a different mindset, to love others in a way that is so contrary to what comes natural to us, to love others not for our own sake, not to get something from them, but for the sake of Christ, for their sake, to give ourselves up for them. Yes, we are to be a community that allows the needs of one another to be what dictates what we do. We are to bear witness to Christ, even if that means difficulty, and should actually see that difficulty as a gift from God. We are to strive with all that we are to be united together, rather than constantly divided. That is the mind we are to have in Christ. So let me ask you again, how are you doing with this? How are we as a church doing with this? Again, I know this is hard, but this is why verses 6 through 11, which I realize I've not talked about yet, but I'll get there. This is why 6 through 11 is so very important. You know, Lind I will say, Lindsay did say, if you volunteer for kids, you can go and take care of them for an hour during the sermon. And I was like, that's my license right there. Our sermon, no, I'm not going to do that. Okay, I know 6 through 11 is so important. This is why it is so important, because listen, what those verses remind us of is that not only is Jesus an example for us, but the remarkable, there is a remarkable salvation that we have in Jesus that kind of enables us to live this way. Okay, that's what those verses are actually calling us to do. Because look, look, look at verses okay, 5 through 8 here. Okay, So I'm going to read verse 5 again, but flow through verse 8. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay, there is so much going on here, and even more than what appears on the surface. Because on the surface, it's actually really important what seems to be happening here. It seems on the surface that Paul is holding up Jesus as this kind of ethical example. And of course, in a very real sense, that is what Paul is doing. 
Okay, I'm not trying to say that he is not. He is holding up Jesus as an example, and what an example he is. I mean, just think about the remarkable story that Paul is telling here about Jesus. Jesus, who before taking on flesh was in the form of God, which really does mean he was God himself. But even though he is God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that's actually an ancient idiom. Okay, which means to exploit. Meaning, what Paul is saying here is that even though Jesus was God himself, was in the form of God, he did not consider that something to exploit over others. Even though he's the one who reigns over all things, has all the power, he did not consider that identity as something to be taken advantage of for himself. His divinity was not for his own sake. Instead, he poured himself out. He emptied himself. Okay, how? What does that mean? Well, what it does not mean is that Jesus gave up being God or gave up certain powers that go along with his divinity. We won't be tempted to think that by the word, but actually look at how Paul actually explains it. So he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. It's not just that he gave up being God. He actually emptied himself by taking another form on to himself. And what is that form? Well, in verse 8, it explains that that form is human. But look at verse 7. It's not just human. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being, in the like, by being born in the likeness of men. It's not just that Jesus emptied himself by uniting his God form to a human form, which he certainly did. It is that Jesus became a certain kind of human. He became a servant he became a slave, a servant who, as verse 8 explains, was obedient to God to the point of death, even death on a cross. Brothers and sisters, that is our Savior. That is our God. In fact, there's a lot of scholars who think that when it says, although he was in the form of God, that it would be better translated because he was in the form of God, in such a way that Paul is reversing the way we think about power. We think that because you have power, you wield it for yourself. But Paul's actually saying, no, because he has power, he gives it up for the sake of others. That's real power. That is our God. That is our Savior. That is the one who did not love others or sacrifice himself for his own sake. And he is the one Paul is, in part, holding up as an example for us to follow. Because if the church lived that way, we would be a radically different kind of community in this world. Jesus is so different. He is such a different example of how to live. Because while, while, while there's some obvious comparisons we can make to Jesus in which he looks different, such as comparing him to Putin, who wields power clearly at the expense of others for his own sake, I think Paul wants to, us to go even further with our comparisons to Jesus here. You see, many scholars point out that in this text, Paul seems to intentionally choose his language and his explanation of Jesus so as to contrast it with Adam and Eve, the first humans. As soon as you've noticed that, you can start reading the text in that kind of way. And if that is what he is doing, then any comparison is not just with people like Putin. It is with each one of us. It's with the history of the world. So think about it. Jesus, even though he was in the form of God, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. 
And yet, even though Jesus was even greater than them, he did not seek to exploit that over others, but instead took on the form of a servant. Well, Adam and Eve did the opposite. They sought to become more like God, to rival God for the sake of themselves. But as a result, as a result of seeking to exalt themselves, they were brought down. Death entered into our world. To put it differently, in seeking to exalt themselves to be like the creator God, they were exposed as being the opposite, as that which is finite, as that which is sinful, as that which dies, that which is not God. But Jesus, who was in the form of God, but did not exploit that, but took the form of a servant and was obedient even to the point of death on the cross, that one, Paul explains, starting in verse 9, God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, in taking the form of a servant and pouring out his life onto death, Jesus has been exalted and declared to be God himself by the Father, to be Lord, to be Yahweh in the flesh. You see, the name that is above every name, the name that is bestowed upon Jesus by the Father, is not the name Jesus. That's not the name that's actually being talked about there. He already had that name. That's the name Joshua. It was a common name. The name that is above every name is the name of the creator covenant God. It is Lord. Lord, not just simply as king, but rather as the king, the God and creator over all things. It's Lord in the way that we use it when we translate the Old Testament and we find Yahweh and we translate it as all caps. That practice started before Paul's day. Paul is actually saying here that all of us will actually get on our knees and cry out that Jesus Christ, this man who was crucified, has been exalted by the Father to be declared Yahweh himself, come in the flesh to reign over all things. We will cry out together, that is our king. You see, that is the name that Paul says the Father then has bestowed on Jesus, that we should all bow down and declare is true of Jesus and why. Why will we all do this? Why did the Father say that this man is actually him? Because he lived the exact opposite to how our world thinks you should live. Because he poured out himself onto death. And we are the community who follows him. And so Paul is calling the church to be a community, a culture, a people who live the same way. We are all, you are all called to live for others to live for Christ, to give up your life. Because the way our culture has called on us to live, the story of our world, if we live into that, is the way to death. To exalt yourself is to bring yourself into the grave. But to bring yourself down is to be raised up. Not just like Christ, but actually in Christ. Because as I've been saying, Paul is not just holding out Jesus as an example here. He actually is subtly, I think subtly to us, but not to the Philippians, subtly doing so much more by showing that Jesus is the one who saves us by doing these kinds of things. 
Now, I know my sermons are often very dense, and maybe especially this one, but there's some more density coming here, but I want you guys to track with me, because to see this is amazing, at least I think it is, and it requires us understanding how Paul is actually alluding to Isaiah in really subtle ways here, okay? Now, it's important to note that in the book, that the book of Isaiah is, it was written 800 years before Jesus was born, but it's often referred to as the fifth gospel, Okay, because it is quoted so often in the New Testament books. So the writings that came after Jesus had lived and died and risen again, what we call the New Testament, these writers found in the book of Isaiah perhaps the clearest foretelling of the time that they and we are living in. It is just quoted all over the place. And this is important because at the time that Philippians is written, the only Bible the church would have had was the Old Testament. The writings that came before Jesus was, was, was born, which all the apostles claim told the true story of the world that Jesus fulfilled. So the Old Testament was the book the church would have had. And just like us, within the New Testament, we're like, you know, John is really significant. Romans is significant. For them, Isaiah and particular parts of Isaiah really clearly showed them who Jesus was. And so because of this, Paul could allude to some of these passages and their significance in really subtle ways, just by grabbing the language and throwing it in here. Like, for example, in this room, if I just said, Jesus came because God so loved the world. Okay, immediately into your mind is coming John 3.16. It just comes up from that phrase alone. And for some of you, you're like, I know Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. I know the kind of context that's going on there. If I say, Jesus is a lion because he was the lamb. Certain images come up. You're familiar with these parts. And Paul could do that with Isaiah. He is alluding to a passage in Isaiah that makes a remarkably profound proclamation about who Jesus is. So that when Paul says that Jesus took on the form of a servant, that he emptied or poured himself out, that he was obedient even unto death, and that because of this, he was highly exalted. What they would have heard what would have been flowing through their minds is Isaiah 52 and 53. For here Isaiah speaks of the Lord's servant who will be high and lifted up like only Yahweh is. But he will be this. He will be highly exalted because, as Isaiah says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was one from whom men hide their faces. He was one that no one thought God cared for because he was a man of sorrows, because of his suffering. But again, as Isaiah explains, this is because it was the Lord's will to crush him. And God's servant obediently let this happen. He, as Isaiah says, poured out his soul, emptied his soul unto death, and was numbered among the transgressors. This is the passage that Paul is referring to. But in so doing, he is reminding the Philippians and us today that Jesus is not just an example for us to follow, but is our salvation. And so is the means by which we can follow. Because as Isaiah explains in Isaiah 53, this servant who poured out his soul unto death did so in our place, did so to bear the sin of many, did so that many would be accounted righteous, did so to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows, to be pierced for our transgressions, crushed 
for our iniquities so that by his wounds we would be healed. Because all of us, like Adam and Eve before us, we have all gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, the servant, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. In other words, brothers and sisters, why should we have this mindset among us? Why should we live for Christ no matter the cost? Why should we consider others more important than ourselves? Why should we not live for ourselves? Because in Christ, through Christ, you have already been given everything you need. All of your sins have been forgiven. Righteousness has been given to you. Life has been handed to you. The promise of eternal life has been gifted to you through Jesus Christ. There is nothing left for you to gain. You see, this is what Paul means here by living this kind of way. It's not about earning your way to God. You don't live for others because you're trying to earn your way to God. That would be selfish living. You do it because you believe that God in Christ has done something for you that you could never do. This is about then the life of faith. It's about believing that Jesus did not, did not exploit being God for his own advantage, but became a servant for you, poured out his life for you, and he has been exalted and declared as your God, as Yahweh himself, to offer you that salvation, to offer you everything we could ever need, to believe that, to believe in Jesus then, is to be part of a community of people who don't need to be selfish. It's not that we choose to be selfless. We don't need to be selfish. It doesn't even make any sense. Because what are you going to get that you haven't already received through Jesus Christ? And so as Luther would say, it's not just that we should live for others. We get to because of the grace that has been lavished upon us. Because Yahweh died and rose again and he reigns over all things. And we know that one day then, one day all of us will stand before the throne, we will bow down, and we will sing the words that we're about to sing. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Praise his name forevermore. For endless days, we, all of us, even if we're separated and I leave or something like that, even if we take it apart, one day we will be together on our knees, praising him for what he has done, for he has given us life. So the life we live now, we live for him, and we live for others. Holy Trinity, may we be that kind of community that knows Jesus that well. Amen. Let's pray. Well, praise your name, Father. Praise your Son. Praise your Holy Spirit. Father, we admit you alone are God. There is no other like you. We look around the world, Father, and we see nothing that compares to you. And amazingly, because of that, we don't need to be afraid of you. 
because you sent your son for us. Father, thank you that your son did not exploit being God over us, but poured out his life onto death. Thank you, Lord, that you have highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name Yahweh. I pray that right now, Father, as we lift up our voices to sing, Lord, that we would declare that. But we not just declare it now, Lord, you would equip us through your spirit, Father, to know this so deeply that we would go out into the world continuing to know this reality and live for us. We're praying for brothers and sisters in this room right now. We're maybe convinced that they need, Lord, to pour out their life for someone else. May they know Jesus deeply. May they not hear in this some kind of legalism, some kind of thing that they have to go do in order to be good. May they know Jesus so much to know that because of him and the love he has poured out, they have all the things. They can trust that you are caring for them. And I pray for the Holy Trinity, Lord, for this church that has loved me and my family so well. Lord, would you root this church in you. May it continue to be faithful to you in all the craziness going on right now and transitioning and Pilsen joining here. May we not find faith and find security in a building, in a pastor, but on the rock of Jesus Christ. May we depend on that in Jesus' name. Amen.